So, in the passage that we're going to look at tonight, we certainly see this idea that there are people who are trying to do what's right, and it seems like they don't get what we expect that they should deserve for faithfully following after God. Um, I was reflecting on this passage this week in light of certain recent events. There was some uh, paperwork for a government agency that I needed to take care of, and I had turned it in several times, and it had not been processed properly, and there was, uh, you know, just a lot of delays, and the whole process had dragged on for about five weeks, and when it came sort of to the end of it, which would have been on Friday, and I said, well, this specific benefit that you have is going to be terminated, uh, you know, there's not really a whole lot we can do about it. I drove down to the office, and there was a part of me that wanted to go in there and just start yelling at people because I was so frustrated. There was another part of me that said, well, that's probably not the right way to do it. But, I mean, there's this tension. If someone's not doing what's right, just sort of sit back and say nothing about it. Do you go to the extreme of being really upset and yelling at them about it? Like, where's the biblical balance in that sort of a circumstance? That's the tension that we see in this passage, especially in verses 15 through 18. Verse 15, I've seen everything in my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. And as we'll see in the next section of verses, none of us can claim to be perfectly righteous. So he's not speaking from the perspective of perfect righteousness. He's just saying, when there's someone who follows God as a general rule, why is it that sometimes they don't get blessing? Why is it that sometimes life is hard for them? How do we reconcile that in our mind? And not only that, but when we come to this idea that there's someone who's wicked and gets all of these good things, how do we uphold the biblical command in another place to not envy the wicked? And say, well, maybe I should go that route. It seems so much more rewarding. That's the tension that we have to deal with. And so we have this, we have this quandary in verses 15 through 18. Righteous who perishes, wicked who lives in wickedness. Have you observed this? Do you see people who do right and still suffer? Do you see people who do wrong and seemingly get away with it and even prosper? What are some examples that might come to mind? What other examples come to mind of either one of these two things that Solomon is talking about? Right. Sure, yeah. For sure. Yeah, I mean, this is not a... I wouldn't say it happens all the time, but it's not so rare that we don't that we don't
think about it. Solomon's advice in the next two verses is puzzling. Don't be excessively righteous. Don't be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Don't be excessively wicked and don't be a fool. Why should you die before your time? What do you think he means by those verses? What does it sound like he's saying when you first read the verse? Let's start there. Okay, in what way? Okay. What else? Any other thoughts about what it seems to say, about what it might actually be saying? Yeah. Okay. Right. And as we'll see in the next section, can we ever be righteous enough to earn God's favor? No. So what's overly righteous then? Or excessively righteous? It's someone like the Pharisees that thinks my righteousness, my wisdom, will automatically guarantee me a particular outcome. Solomon says that's not the way it works, so don't pour yourself into pursuing righteousness and wisdom in your own strength in such a way that it's going to fail anyway. You will not live forever simply because you're wise. You will not live forever simply because you're righteous. In fact, as he says in verse 15, you may in fact die early despite being righteous, despite being wise. So, what about the other extreme? Who do you think he's, if he's talking about the Pharisee kind of person on the one extreme, who do you think he's talking about on the other extreme in verse uh, 17? Okay, someone who's proud. What else? Sure. And that's a really good example because if you think to the Ten Commandments, what does it say about children obey your parents? That you may live long. So if you abandon yourself to all sorts of sinful activity, there is a much higher probability that your life will be cut short. So, on the one extreme... You can wear yourself out by trying to be righteous in your own strength. On the other extreme, you can short, cut your life short by living wickedly. So what does Solomon advise is the correct response then in verse 18? What do you think he means? Grasp one thing and not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. What do you think the things are that he's, that he's recommending that we hang on to? Probably wisdom and righteousness. I think he's saying you can go to extremes toward it or away from it 
You don't get to where God wants you to be by abandoning wisdom and righteousness. You hold on to both of them. The one who fears God has both. But there's also this idea, I think, in the way that he's phrasing it, that there's a balance. You recognize wisdom and righteousness are not going to preserve my life forever, based on what he said in verse 15. So I don't go to extremes. I don't just sin because I know there's consequences for sin. And I don't pursue righteousness and wisdom to the exclusion of everything else. He's going to say in chapter 12, for example, um, chapter 12 and verse 12, the writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. You can pursue wisdom and pursue wisdom and pursue wisdom and assume that your life will automatically be better. He says it's not a guarantee. It's protection but it's not an absolute guarantee, as we saw in the previous passage last week. So pursue wisdom. Don't let go of righteousness, because you could have wisdom and live sinfully, right? You could use wisdom to your own ends. I'm going to navigate life skillfully for myself, selfishly. You've got to hang on to both things, hold them in balance, recognize I don't go over here, because the way of sinfulness leads to death and destruction. I don't go over here, because no matter how righteous I try to be, I cannot preserve my life or guarantee God's blessing in my life. I can't force God's hand to do what I want Him to do. So I live righteously, I seek to live wisely, and I recognize that the outcome of it is in God's hand. So that's, I think, what he's saying in these first few verses. Then he's going to come to, if the, the puzzling thing in verse 15 is that there's righteous who perishes in his righteousness and wicked who prolongs in his wickedness, he's going to show the contrast of the value of wisdom and yet the fact that no one hangs on to it perfectly. Look at verse 19. When it says, Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. I mean, that's a strange sort of math, that one is greater than ten, right? Um, another place in Ecclesiastes, it talks about a man who delivers a city by his wisdom. The man who delivers his, the city by his wisdom is greater than all of the rulers of the city who are not able to deliver the city because they lack the particular skill or wisdom that that man has. And yet he's going to say in the next verse, verse 20, even the wisest person, even the most righteous person actually, there's not a person who does good always and never sins. Is that true? Think about the example that Solomon would have. Think about Solomon's own parents. And think about this verse in light of that. There is not a righteous man who never sins. Was David righteous? He's a man after God's own heart. Solomon's father and his mother came together through adultery. Solomon's, would have been his older sibling, died. Solomon lived. You had to think that he's probably thinking through that when he writes a verse like this, right? What's his illustration of how we know that righteous people don't sin, though? How do, how do we know that righteous people still sin, I should say? from verses 21 and 22. Maybe when the kids look at that, verses 21 and 22. How, what shows us the sin that still is in us? 
verse 22. What does it say even the righteous person may have done to someone? May have cursed someone. You could be the best person in the world, humanly speaking, the most righteous person in the world by everyone's observation. Somebody does something that makes you really frustrated or you come to an overwhelming circumstance and out you say something and, and, and curse God or speak evil of someone or grumble or something along those lines. Even the most righteous person reveals their heart when they speak. And sooner or later, all of us reveal that there's still sin in our hearts. Think about the words of James. Tongue is a fire, the wor a world of iniquity. It sets on fire the course of our lives. It's set on, on fire by hell. If any man is a perfect man, he can control what? So which of us is a perfect man? Nobody. Jesus, but none of us live up to that 100% of the time. So, if you know that you sin sometimes, how does that affect your perception of other people's sin? Verse 21. What do you think? How do we respond when other people sin against us knowing that we ourselves sin? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so negatively, don't judge more than I'm judged and positively, be patient with other people because God's been patient with me. That doesn't mean that we're okay with sin. Clearly, sin leads to death, destruction, terrible consequences. But it does mean we recognize that the best among us fails many times over. By God's help, hopefully less and less, but we approach it humbly. Which is why it says in Galatians, you see somebody, they're sinning. You come up to them and you say, you idiot, why are you doing that again? That's what the verse says, right? No. What's the verse say? You see someone caught in a sin, trespass, fault. What do you do? Come up to him humbly. Seek that you yourself are not caught in the same temptation, but recognize there's many times when you have been. And then he comes, and he, he turns from the paradox of the righteous who dies and the foolish who lives to the fact that no one is perfectly righteous, to in verses 23 through 26, this exploration of wisdom relative to sin. I tested all this with wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. Solomon, the Bible says, is the wisest man who lived. And that verse says what? Did he figure it all out or did he not figure it all out? He didn't figure it all out. Why couldn't he? Okay, he's finite. What did you say, Paul? He's not God. We have limitations because we're not God. We have limitations because we're human beings. And just as an aside, sometimes we say, well, this will all make sense in heaven. I think there's a sense in which we still won't understand everything in heaven. We'll learn more and more and more about who God is through all of eternity. But God's still going to be God. And our minds can't hold everything that God knows. And I think we have to be okay with that. Because we don't want a God that only knows as much as I do, or as you do, right? 
We don't want a God who can only do the things that you do and I can do, which is why idols are so foolish. Chop down a tree, set up half of it as a thing, bow down to it. You burn half of it for firewood, why are you worshiping the other half? It can't talk, it can't help you, it can't move, it falls down in its temple, you pick it back up again, God lays it down and it breaks in pieces, you pick it back up again, patch it up. <laughs> the Bible mocks idolatry consistently because it's foolish. So, we're not God. We should not worship ourselves or some false God made in our own image. We should worship the God in whose image we were made. We can't figure it all out. Verse 24, what has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I don't know that he's strictly speaking about history here, but there's probably an element in which it has application to that. Can we know everything that's happened before us? No, why not? What are some reasons that we don't always know what happens before us? It's not written down. What happened to the library at Alexandria? It burned. Sometimes it gets written down and then the records are lost. I think our problem today is technological obsolescence is meaning that what you write on um, GeoCities in the year 2000 sooner or later is not going to be available any longer 20 years later. Records are lost. Records are not taken. We can't discover. Oh, even if records are preserved and, and we do have them, what's the problem? They may not be accurate. Everything we write down has a particular personal bias. Try hard as we might not for it to be that way. So Solomon says, you can't explore everything that's happened before you. Verse 25, I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation and know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. Now, this is very similar to what he had said back in, I believe it was chapter 2, verse 12. I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly for what the man who will come after the king, what has already been done. Which actually is interesting because it ties in with the end of chapter 6. Who knows what is good for man during his lifetime? Who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? He's keep sort of picking these themes back up. You can't know fully what's happened before. You stand right here and you don't know what's around the corner. And there's this question of how do you know how you should live in this period right now? It's like, it's like you're standing under a spotlight at nighttime. Over there is darkness. Over there is darkness. You see right here. But if we don't use God's wisdom to guide us, it's like someone breaks the spotlight and then there's no, dark, there's no light anywhere before, now, or after. If we have God's wisdom, we at least see for the moment what we ought to do like we saw last week. So he, he wants to explore both wisdom and foolishness and madness. What's his illustration, verse 26, of sin?
What's that? Sin traps you. Specifically, what kind of sin does he have in view? What, what kind of sinful person? Yeah, a woman that's trying to lead someone into adultery. It, it, it describes her as a heart whose, are, whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. And he describes this as more bitter than death. Why would you think he would say it's more bitter than death? We'll get to that in a second, but it ties in, yeah. Yeah, right. If you die, you sort of escape the consequences of your sinful choices, but if you are trapped in that sinful relationship, you're, you're bound in it, which I think is part of why Paul talks about, in his illustration of the relationship between the Christian and the old way of life, in, I think it's 2 Corinthians 6, he says that what fellowship has light with darkness, and it says don't be bound together. There's a connection between a husband and a wife that is a right sort of bond. There's a connection between a man and a woman who are living in a moral lifestyle together that is a trap, a snare, a chain. That's what he's talking about here. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Think about Proverbs. Why will the one who fears God escape from her why will the one who doesn't be trapped by her? What does the person who's wise do when they see a potential danger? Go away. Think about Joseph. Potiphar's wife says, everything in this house belongs to you, including me. Let's make that a reality. Potiphar's wife shouldn't do that because she's what? She's Potiphar's wife, not Joseph's, right? Joseph runs away. He flees that. The sinful person, like the guy in Proverbs, the naive person, the simple person, the foolish person, what does he do? She says, come in. What does he do? He goes in. And what does Proverbs say? It says, not knowing that her house is a house of death, that it you, it's like you walk in and it's a trap door down to destruction, to the pit, to death, to all of these terrible outcomes. There are many other kinds of bondage. This is one example that Solomon picked. What sin traps you? That's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it out loud, but think about it. In the commentaries I was reading, just sort of went on a bit of a pastoral note and it said if your sin is laziness get rid of your sofa and your TV if your sin is greed quit getting catalogs in the mail and emails that have advertisements and, and going to stores where you're going to be tempted to fulfill that greed if your temptation is lust, don't do things that are going to feed it. If your temptation is anger, don't listen to political news. Um, whatever your particular sin is, do you see it as a trap, as a snare, as a danger 
that must be fled and pushed aside and fought against? Or do you see it as like your neighbor's dog that's caged up after dog fights? Well, I hope the chain holds. It's, it's, it's over there. It could kill me if it gets out. The chain's probably strong enough. That's how we look at sin sometimes. We can't play with it. We can't tolerate it. Solomon says we ought to run from it. Wisdom about sin is it's a trap, it's a snare, it's a danger. Don't love it. Don't let it near you. Get away from it. Then he sort of comes to his conclusion in verses 27 through 29. Behold, I've discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking but have not found. So Solomon's saying, adding one thing to another, I'm comparing this and this and this and this. He's like Einstein trying to find the unified theory of everything, right? If I think about it long enough, maybe all the pieces will fall into place. If you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, it does. If you're trying to understand every detail of the way that the world functions, it doesn't. Some of it because God's plan and His thoughts and His ways are higher than our ways. Some of it because we just don't have enough information to see the whole picture. Solomon says, I haven't found the answer yet, but I've been seeking after it. And then a verse that half of you will not like. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all of these. So going back to your point a few minutes ago, Corey, Solomon had a thousand wives, right? Why do you think he didn't find a woman, a faithful woman, a wise woman, a righteous woman, among all of his companions? What was true about all of these women that were in his life? Yeah, they're idolatresses. They're worshiping Molech and Baal and Ashtoreth and Chemosh and all of these false gods. Wisest man who ever lived made the most foolish choices about marriage of anybody who's ever lived. Not once, but is it seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines, or the other way? I can, I, yeah. So seven hundred, and then another three hundred times, he made the same foolish choice to seemingly continually go after women who hated God and worshipped idols. And then he says. I have not found a woman among them who is a, a faithful one. Why do you think that is, Solomon? Sin blinds all of us, even the wisest of us. When he says one, and, and the, another possible interpretation that has been put forth is that he's saying there's a sense in which man can have a one man can have a friendship with another man, but that any man's friendship with a woman is always going to be complicated by the curse of sin and some of the things that we see in Genesis 3 about her desire will be over you and you will rule over and there will be this conflict. There's just this tension in marriage because of the way that um, the curse of sin works in humanity. That's another potential explanation and one that we should perhaps consider. But I think the thing is, Solomon says, I've seen a few faithful men but I haven't really seen faithful woman, women, and again, I think a lot of that has to do with who he surrounded himself with. 
God, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. It's an interesting picture in one of the things I was reading about this passage. You've seen those charts about evolution, right? You start out, and the monkey's down on all fours, and then he gets a little bit taller, and he gets a little bit taller, and then he's standing and walking upright. Not true, but I think it illustrates the point in this sense. God made us upright. We've turned to many devices. We've bent down and looked at creation instead of standing up and looking toward God. That's what Romans 1 said. Instead of worshiping God, we worship beasts and creatures and creeping things. You bow down and worship things that are less than you instead of worshiping the one who's greater than you. Solomon says that's what he discovered. People have gone their own way. So, when we see the righteous die too soon by our reckoning, and the wicked live long and prosperous lives, we might think, live a wicked life. Solomon says, no, don't live a wicked life. Because more often than not, you will die before your time. Those are the exception, not the rule. And if we say, well, the solution, the reason the righteous person died was because they weren't righteous enough. Solomon says, you can be as righteous as you want to be, and it will not guarantee you long life and many blessings. That's in the hand of God. Do you live a perfect life, even if you strive to be righteous? No. So have patience with other sinners without loving their sin or tolerating it. And when it comes to sin, you shouldn't be okay with it. Watch out for it. See it as a trap. Run away from it. And then remember that God created us, designed us, wants us to live upright, but there are a whole lot of things that pull us away. So you're going to recognize those dangers. Are you going to turn away from them? Are you going to seek God? Or are you going to fail by giving in to them? We can't do this on our own. We certainly need God's help. But by God's help, we can live a right life that navigates the extremes of self-righteousness and self-abandonment to wickedness. But instead, follow the way of God that will more often than not, bring life, bring blessing, be characterized by wisdom, and honor the purpose for which God made us. That's what I think Solomon calls us to do. Let's pray. Lord, we look around us and we see a world that is often unjust in both directions. Help us not to envy sinners. Help us not to curse your name when, it's, when we see the righteous fall. Not into sin, but coming to the end of their lives. Because by our reckoning, their lives 
failed in some sense, but by your reckoning, they're in your presence and enjoying that glory before we do. And the wicked may seem to get off the hook of justice here, but the justice that awaits those who reject you is far more terrible than anything they could face in this life. Lord, help us to be aware of our own sin, that even though we may seek to faithfully follow you, we are constantly reminded that we are not yet made perfect. Help us to continue to repent and turn to you. Help us to see the dangers of sin for what they are, a trap, a snare, a chain, a pit that leads to destruction. It's easy for us to think, like it says in the poem, that Sin is a monster that has a frightful face, but first we endure it, then we move closer to it, and then we embrace it. Lord, help us not take that attitude towards sin. And then, Lord, help us to remember the purpose for which you created us. You made us to live uprightly in your sight, and there are many ways in which we do not do so. Help us to by your grace, be restored to the purpose for which you made us. As it says in Ephesians, you created us in Christ Jesus to do good works. You knew us from before the foundation of the world. It was your purpose when you made the world and when you chose us to salvation and when you saved us in time and even right now that we would live in a way that honors you. Help us to do that, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.